Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. At this season, when days are short and darkness abundant, light is most welcome. Today, we'll hear about PRISM, the display of winter lights, has returned to Woodruff Park in downtown Atlanta with a new theme. The light and water-based installations will brighten downtown through the end of January. Lighting up the dark in a dangerous way is central to the film Radium Girls. Director Lydia Dean Pilcher will tell us the true story of factory girls who suffered dire consequences from radium poisoning in the 1920s because of a shocking corporate cover-up. First, exploring culture and community through a creative form of travel. Food and wine tours, archaeological digs, wild animal safaris, camping and outdoors trips. Many types of travel are available to us. For Megan Taylor Morrison, dance has been her passport to exploring other places. Her book, Dance Adventures, is a collection of stories about dancing abroad. She joins us now via Zoom. Megan, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Would you talk about the reasons you gave for publishing a book about dance travel at this particular time? You know, dance itself is a great unifying art form. This project started two years ago, and at the time, I had just closed my company that did cultural immersion through the arts and dancing. And I wanted some way to continue this mission and to share with people all over the world about how dancing abroad can invite us into these incredible experiences of cross-cultural friendships and unexpected moments and a better understanding of local cultures and local people. And it became, after the death of George Floyd, it really became an opportunity to enter into a world of equitable editing and make sure that this was a book and a project that truly was unifying, that we brought in voices from people of all different backgrounds. You acknowledge that travel implies privilege and that most travel publications have too few BIPOC contributors. How is this book different? Well, when I began to collect stories for this book, I realized that the majority of people I'd reached out to were white. I myself am white, and it happened that those were the majority of people in my network. And I think that as we go and launch projects such as this, we really have to consider what our biases are and who we know and who we might ask by default to participate in something. And so... I decided that I was going to go beyond my typical network and make sure that at least 50% of contributors to this book were from BIPOC communities. So I reached out to people from 
a whole variety of backgrounds. And in the end, we did end up with just about 50% of contributors representing the BIPOC communities. And it truly feels like a book I'm proud to publish that serves the purpose of uniting people through dance and gets to share stories from people with many, many different viewpoints so that we can enjoy all those different perspectives and how rich they are. How is the book divided? The book is divided into four sections, and the first is Roots, which includes stories from people about going to a place that's connected to their family or to their ancestors to discover more about who they are. Stories in that section include um, a story by Makeda Kumasi, who teaches West African dance at UC Riverside, and she goes to Senegal for the first time to the place where her ancestors were born to learn dancing, or a story from Ted Samuel, whose parents were born in Southern India, and he goes there to learn a South Indian folk dance and gets to therefore learn more about his, uh, his parents' culture and really about the culture that he grew up in within his immediate family. The second section is all about finding community. And it's always been amazing to me how people who are dancers can go abroad and find community immediately. They can go from having no friends to having an abundance of friends because they're willing to go out and dance and therefore play and connect with people. The third section is around unexpected experiences. So times when people were willing to dance, whether or not they were good dancers, some of our contributors are just beginners at dance, but because they were willing to get out there and dance and have this experience in another country, these unusual opportunities arose that they weren't sure they ever could have accessed otherwise. And the final part of the book is on personal development ways that dancing abroad helped people heal old traumas, learn more about themselves, build confidence, embrace body positivity, and more. In part one, I was especially intrigued with the Indian American Ted Samuel's story. He went to the south of India to immerse himself in a culture that he described as both inborn and yet foreign. What did Karagatram enable Ted to do? I loved that story also. And as Ted has described it to me, Karagatram is this dance that seemed like it was, it took advantage of all the best parts of his personality and allowed him to connect to his roots in a way that felt so genuine. He says that Karagatram took advantage of his buffoonish stage presence, <laughs> which I loved because, you know, it, a lot of different dances pull forth different parts of us, but for him that felt most authentic. And he was able to um, connect with a renowned performer who taught him the dance. He was able to get to know the arts of South India. And he ended up traveling and performing internationally this dance. So he actually was able to become a cultural ambassador of sorts. Yeah, this is from the Tamil region where his family came from. Would you describe the dance? It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's a dance where performers are often doing feats and stunts that might require, in, in Ted's case, balancing a heavy pot on his head while dancing, and at one point balancing the pot while also rolling around on the floor and tying a sari, which I have never seen Ted do, but it is on my bucket list to watch him do this one day. They often sometimes involve ladders or literal pins and needles. Uh, and it's also one of the only South Indian performing arts that can include cross-dressing. So that is another interesting aspect of Karagatam. Yeah. And he wrote that performing the dance was more about state of mind than perfecting technique. I thought that was fascinating. Yes. And a perfect example about how dancing is so much more about just movements. It's about seeing who we are and where we can grow as 
people and performers because ultimately it was about releasing perfectionism, trusting himself and believing that he would be able to dance. And those are lessons that don't just serve us as dancers, they serve us as people. Yeah. The Nigerian-born Damilare Idayeri in part two, he contributed an essay on his time spent in Hungary. How did an African-born dancer find community in that very white European nation? Yes. And Damilare said that dance was his all-access pass to community. So for him, it was such a meaningful way to go and learn about another culture. And he took uh, took part in a master's program called Choreo Mundus that takes students to four different countries where they get to study dance anthropology in each of those European countries. And so his time with that master's program was incredibly meaningful for him. And the time in Hungary was especially meaningful because he got to go so deep and go beyond just the dances that they were learning to learning more dances from the locals and then having a chance to actually try out his dances at a at a social dance where they invited people not just from Hungary, but from across the border in Romania as you and I both learned by reading this book, there is some crossover between the performing arts in Hungary and Romania. So it was really, for him, it was a a way to get to know the locals, share in their culture, and get to celebrate them and enjoy seeing them react to him learning their dances. He said to me that people were so excited when they saw that he could do some of these traditional dances and they would always pull him aside and chat with him and had lots of questions about where he was from and how he had learned. He is a marvelous writer as well as dancer, I imagine. And I could see how comprehensive his approach to dance is, you know, taking in anthropology, Uh, geography, and of course, the art of dance in in what he does. But it's just a marvelous essay. It is. And it really shows you how he brought in so many different ways of writing, because you can see his background as an academic. You can see that he has experience as a dance anthropologist. And you can also see the short story first person narrative piece of it. And it's really exciting when those things come together to produce something that's educational and engaging and inspiring. Very well put. Now, in part three, Natalie Preddy's essay is titled, Not a Biracial Ballerina. What was her unexpected experience? Natalie's story was wonderful, and it involved her finally finding a community of ballet dancers that looked like her. She described growing up in ballet and how it felt really whitewashed and like a place where her body shape was not welcome or not advantageous, and how she almost gave it up until she finally decided to go and study Uh, study dance in in London. And her story ends with a scene where these dancers come out to perform and she realizes that they have many different body types and that they come from many different backgrounds. And she's surprised and also finds the sense of relief and joy and a sense that she is in the right place. Your own experience appears in part four of the book. Megan, what was the impact of dancing abroad on your life? It's difficult to describe, and I sometimes get emotional when I describe it. So we'll see. We'll see what happens here. I've had the great privilege to be able to travel and dance in many different countries and learn so much about other cultures that way. The story that I write in the book was about my time uh, doing West African dance in Guinea. That was probably the most impactful experience I've had dancing abroad. And it was at a time in my life where I was on the brink of becoming an entrepreneur and really pursuing my dharma in a way, uh, doing what I really thought I was meant to do. 
And I was completely terrified. I didn't want to take that leap of faith. I knew what was safe. I had a great nine to five job. I lived in a great house. And even though I had this deep, deep longing to go and do what I felt called to do, I was afraid. So when I went to Guinea, I met all of these incredible artists who were so dedicated to their art and dealt with so many more obstacles than I ever could have even imagined. Whether it was the people I met who worked all night at the airport and then walked seven miles to dance rehearsal and only ate one meal a day and were just delighted and honored to be artists, committed to it wholeheartedly. Or whether it was the dance group I saw where all of the performers had been crippled by polio and they were dancing with such ferocious spirit and commitment that was unlike anything that I had ever seen. It really humbled me and it invited me to step into this new level of courage to do what I felt called to do as an artist and entrepreneur. And I'm still grateful to this day for having met those incredible artists and those incredible people and to um, one of my mentors, Sarah Lee Parker, who, who facilitated the whole trip. Ultimately, how does this book demonstrate that dance is stronger than any cultural divide? I believe that dance shows the play and wonder and connection that's inherent in all human beings, maybe better than anything else on the planet. And it's that uniting thread that I believe is the reason that dance is bigger than any cultural divide. When you can really connect with that quality and that essence of other people, it doesn't matter that you don't speak the same language. It doesn't matter that you were born in different places or had different experiences. It's truly about presence and being in the moment and sharing in something really wonderful with others. Author Megan Taylor Morrison, her book, Dance Adventures, True Stories About Dancing Abroad, is available now. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Prism Winter Lights has returned to Woodruff Park in downtown Atlanta. The light and water-based installations will be on display through the end of January. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Ansley Whipple, the project manager for Woodruff Park, and with one of the featured artists, Alex Swavani. Here, Ansley explains how this year's exhibition will differ from the last. So this year for PRISM, we have a new theme, which is water. So we've added a component of water. So that is a thread that runs through all of the pieces that you'll see that there's there's some connection with water in all of them. Can you talk about the three artists that worked on the light-based sculptures that are featured in the exhibit? Sure. So we have three large sculptures in the center of the park in the lawn area. And we also have a very cool projection piece over by the water wall, the the International Peace Fountain. So just to start with the sculptures on the lawn, there is one by artist Medora Frey, which is called Arctic Fire. And it is a a mirrored pyramid that has a a fire inside of it. Uh, Not a real fire, but... (laughs) illusion of a fire. Another piece is Bear Off by Jason Sweet that features some canoes and is a lot of metalwork. And then of course we have Atlantis Rising by Alex Wavoni. And hers is kind of the, the bust of an Afrofuturistic woman who looks very amazing. And each of these pieces can be viewed in the day or the nighttime. Although um, we suggest ideally coming around dusk so you can kind of see how they transition from day to night, but they all have a light-based element to them. And then at the water wall, we have projection 
And there are three artists whose artwork we feature in the projection. And that is Amelia Carly and Nika and Joseph Perigine. And then we had a fourth artist, Chris Pilcher, who animated pieces, kind of paintings or pieces of art from those other three artists to create a loop of animated art that is shown. And that also starts around sunset. Can you talk about some of the photos and videos that are incorporated into that? We have essentially worked with three different artists who have either paintings or drawings that were curated by Dashboard. And then we worked with the fourth artist, Chris Pilcher, to animate the drawings. So instead of just projecting kind of, you know, just a painting, a still image, and kind of rotate doing a slideshow like that, Chris actually took the art and added um, animated elements into it to enhance the interest and make it a little more exciting and kind of having something to interact with the water as well. Okay. So the videos and the photos and the installations that are projected on the water wall, they play in a loop continuously. Yes. They play from around sunset to, I believe it's 10 PM. What is Dashboard and how do they work with Woodruff Park? So Dashboard is an arts collective and they served to really be the um, curators and producers of this exhibit. And they create art in all kinds of places and many unexpected places. They do a lot of work in public spaces all around the, the country, I think even around the world. They're really the connection point between us and the artists as well as the people who actually install and put up the exhibit. And since they do so much work in the outdoors, they know how to kind of work with the artists to make pieces that are going to withstand the elements and, you know, are just familiar with all the complications that come with public art and putting art in public spaces. Gotcha. Alex, your piece, Atlantis Rising, was created out of foam, polyurethane, and steel. Can you describe what your piece exactly looks like and how you incorporated those elements? Yes. Atlantis Rising was a play on Atlanta. And the image is of a um, Black woman, an Afrocentric woman, who seems to be rising up out of the ground as if she's rising up out of water to kind of give this energy of there's something powerful at play underneath the ground. I uh, made it look as futuristic as I could while also um, playing off of current trends in the culture, which are like Bantu knots, and but also using like these robotic elements with the uh, the visor and the crown. And how tall would you say this woman is? She is eight feet tall. Wow, it's just beautiful. I'm looking at it right now, and I just love the colors, the purples, and everything that it's showing. It's it's really stunning. Thank you. There's actually um, a play on the aquatic feature as well in the paint job. It was inspired by uh, deep sea like rainbow squids who are pearlescent and they color shift as they swim. So depending on the time of day, you're going to get reds and golds and closer to the nighttime, you're going to get more purple and teal and, and blue. That's amazing. And I saw that you also based it off the comic book character Galactus. What yeah, yeah. does he look like and how was, why was that the inspiration for this piece? Galactus is a very, very large uh, godlike entity that kind of destroys worlds. He goes around and he sucks the energy out of, world, out of worlds. He's kind of cursed to do so. I like that character because he does have those purples and those blues from the, the original comic books. And just like the, the feeling of this very like looming character entering the world, I wanted to, to use that, that energy in this piece. Mm -hmm. Are you a comic book fanatic? I'm more so the movies. I didn't have uh, access to the, the comics as a kid, but I love the movies. Would you say that Atlantis Rising is kind of representative of Atlanta currently with everything that's gone on in this last year? Absolutely. It's a, an energy of the people rising. Like there's something that is bubbling from beneath the surface to the top. And a power, the power of the people is coming to fruition. 
How does your love of toy design, sculpting, and ancient spirituality inform your works? The aesthetic and then the simplicity of communicating through that aesthetic. You know, toys are tools for kids to learn, and they learn about relationships and roles, you know, playing cops and robbers and, and things like that with these toys. And I kind of use that same energy, that energy of, of learning and discussing in a very simple format to communicate ideas. And, and that's why I, um, I use that mode to communicate. How would you describe most of your artwork? Most of my artwork is pretty Afrofuturistic. It's very uh, spiritual. I'm drawing from a lot of ancient spirituality, um, a lot of spirituality across the African diaspora, especially like Dogon and uh, Yoruba. And very colorful and whimsical and just awe-inspiring. I'm trying to communicate across the, the, um, the bounds of, of age. So um, I would try to say colorful and light, but also with the symbology, pretty powerful and, and direct. Mm-hmm. Well, that definitely comes through in Atlantis Rising for sure. Thank you so much. Ansley, I noticed that all the artists that are featured in the exhibition are from the Atlanta area. Why did you guys want to have artists just from this area? Yes, they are all local. And last year with PRISM, we featured both um, national and local artists. We hope to do that again in the future, but this year we wanted to stay local, mostly because of COVID. And we didn't want um, people traveling, you know, artists having to travel and dealing with the complications of that during this time. So we were um, happy to feature local artists this year. Yeah, definitely. And did you guys give the artists any directions or guidelines that they needed to adhere to in order to create their pieces? Yeah, so the curators of the show Dashboard worked individually with the artists on and talked to them about the themes and um, kind of worked with them to develop their pieces as it related to the theme, but they took a, a very hands-on approach to help understand what the, the art pieces were and where they would be placed and, you know, how they would relate to one another as well to have kind of a broad range of imagery represented. Why did Woodruff choose the theme of water as this year's exhibition? This year, just having all the craziness of this year and water being just a very basic element and things kind of kind of returning to like the basics and having water be such a, a key element in that way. But I, I think maybe Alex has some more insight. Mm-hmm. Alex? I don't have an exact reason why. I think there was an intention of playing off of all of the water elements that are surrounding Woodruff Park. There's beautiful fountains and that beautiful wall. I think that Dashboard intended to utilize that as much as possible in the uh, the new event. And they did. They did a really beautiful job with those projections. Mm-hmm. Since this is an outdoor exhibition, I can imagine that it would be susceptible to vandalism. How does Woodruff work to ensure the safety of these pieces? Yeah, that vandalism is something always to consider when putting anything outside. And luckily, knock on wood, we haven't had much of an issue. Last year, we didn't have any vandalism. Generally, we've experienced that visitors to the park are very respectful. It's very clear that they are art pieces and We've not had an issue so far with with people being disrespectful to them. Additionally, when uh, Dashboard and the artists were installing the pieces, they, you know, were very, and you know, were very present in the park and kind of talking to people visiting the park. You know, people come up and ask what was going on and what they're doing, and so that kind of helped to create, like, foster a, a mutual respect with you know, some of our regular visitors and just new visitors coming. So it kind of creates people who are looking out for the art as well. That's good. That's great. Are there any CDC guidelines with COVID and everything like that, that you guys are asking visitors to adhere to? Yeah, we are asking people to um, social distance and wear masks when they visit. But luckily, this is an activity that we think that most people can come partake in because it's outdoors and um, there's not like a scheduled time where people are kind of gathering together where you get like a big group of people coming together. So 
Unfortunately, we've had to cancel a lot of our events and programs this year for the park, but we were really excited to still be able to do this one because we felt it was so safe. But we do ask that people, you know, are respectful of other visitors and keep their distance, kind of staying with their pods and, you know, self-regulate as to when they're coming as far as, you know, if there's any crowds or anything. Ansley Whipple, the project manager for Woodruff Park, and artist Alex Wavani, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Prism Winter Lights will be on display at Woodruff Park in downtown Atlanta through January 31st. You can find more information on our website, wade.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Like many things originally thought beneficial, radium proved deadly. In the 1920s, hundreds of young women working in factories were exposed to so much radium that their grave sites still set off Geiger counters. This story is at the heart of the film Radium Girls. Lydia Dean Pilcher is a producer and director of the film. She joins us now via Zoom. Lydia, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's great to be here today. What inspired you to tell this story? I've been an environmental activist for, I would say, ever since I became a mother 25 years ago. And I had been looking for a while to find a story that would blend my passion for the environment with my storytelling career. And I had put the word out, was trying to find the right script. I, I like to tell narrative feature stories. And I had heard about a script that Ginny Moeller and Brittany Shaw had written, which is this script. And I reached out, got the script. And when I read it, I was totally captivated because I loved the idea that the story of this coming of age into this kind of rude awakening of real world, you know, power politics, corporate scandal um, happened with these teenage girls. And, you know, that it was one girl that had dreams of going to Hollywood, another girl wanted to go on archaeological digs in Egypt, but they were painting glow-in-the-dark watch dials in Orange, New Jersey in the 1920s. And everything starts to unravel when Joe's tooth falls out and Bessie realizes that something's going on, something's wrong. The lead characters in the film, Bessie and Joe, are sisters, as you said, who work at the American Radium Factory. Was that a real company? The real company was U.S. Radium, and we, we changed the name slightly. But it was it was a real company. The whole story is a true story. And the, the court case that the girls ultimately mounted against the company is a notorious case that is still used today in arguing um, cases of toxic chemical litigation. Mm. What did the factory produce that led to the women's exposure to radium? Well, the American Radium Company or U.S. Radium Company was making glow-in-the-dark watch dials. 
And it had originally started as a phenomena for uh, soldiers and foxholes in World War One, And there were, there were a number of different luminous watch dial painting factories around the country. There was one in Connecticut, one in Ottawa, Illinois. There was even one outside Athens, Georgia. And these companies were basically hiring young women, often immigrant women, to lip point the radioactive paint onto the watch dials. It was a very um, delicate sort of precision driven process. And women had been China painting for years. So it was a similar process, except this time the paint was poison. So they dipped their thin brushes into the radium and then into their mouths to make the bristle was that much finer. I mean, it is so chilling to watch that in the film. I thought it noteworthy that the company's doctor would diagnose all of the women suffering from radium poisoning with syphilis. Why did they choose that disease? Well, I think we could imagine that, as uh, Catherine Wiley says in the film, that syphilis is a diagnosis that not many women would want to talk about. And that is actually how the radium poisoning was proven. You know, in real life, there were two sisters who had a third older sister who had died of reportedly syphilis. And when the girls came to meet Catherine Wiley, who was head of the National Consumers League in New Jersey, she suggested that the only way to really prove that radium poisoning was happening was to exhume a body. And the the girls were very disturbed by this idea. And in fact, just, you know, one got up and left the meeting, the other one's listening intently. But when they get home that night, they talk about it and they decide that it's something that they have to do. And indeed it did prove that there was no syphilis. She died of radium poisoning. But in fact, the doctor's diagnosis is more sinister because it's yet another way of not only silencing women, but a false accusation that certainly in that era would have carried with it a lot of shame. Yeah, I think it, 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 is, it does feel like a, a predecessor to slut shaming in, in many ways. But I, I think also these women were considered to be dispensable because the the real corporate scandal is that the radium company had hired researchers from Harvard University, Department of Public Health, who came and did did their testing and their research, and they had found and proven that there was radium poisoning that was happening and that that was the cause of the girls getting sick. But they had signed these non-disclosure agreements, and they weren't allowed to speak about the research, and the company altered the documents with the New Jersey Health Department. And so the information was buried. And I think that is really the scandal of the story, that there was wrongdoing happening and and it was with full knowledge. Mm. You mentioned that this is based on a true story. Were Bessie and Joe based on two women in particular? Yes, there are... um, some diaries that have been left behind by the Radium Girls, and one in particular that was written by Catherine Schaub, gave us a lot of insight into her personality. And you could see that she was a dreamer. She had this very sparkly personality, a vivid imagination. And she was the inspiration for the Bessie character played by Joey King. And there are many other Radium Girls who are involved in the story. So. I think the inspiration really came from Catherine Schaub for Bessie. And then the Maggia sisters were the two sisters that had the older sister who had um, predeceased. Then there's many other characters. Catherine Wiley is is a historic character who's an important part of the story, the Consumers League. Alice Hamilton was, she was a pioneer in industrial toxicology. Arthur Roeder is a real character, Um, Dr. Flynn, Dr. Marlin. The whole story essentially is based on true events that happened in Orange, New Jersey. Mm. 
In the film, you intersperse some archival footage of the era with the narrative scenes. Would you talk about that artistic decision? Yes, the writers of the of the film, Ginny Moeller, who's also co-directed with me, and the other writer, Brittany Shaw, were working as archival footage researchers when they graduated from NYU Film School. And they had been working on doc a documentary for the History Channel. And Ginny was working on one about the Manhattan Project. Brittany was working on one for the Civil Rights Project. And they had been very immersed, you know, in this time period. And Ginny was the one who sort of stumbled on the story of the Radium Girls and sort of, as she tells it, wheeled her chair over to Brittany and said, you've got to see this story. But what happened was that when we, you know, got ready to sort of make the movie and we were thinking about all the different elements to kind of set the stage for the time period that the Radium Girls existed in, a lot of the material that they were very familiar with from their archival research came forward. And it felt, because we were an independent film, like a really amazing idea to come up with a way to integrate the footage into the movie to give more context of the period and the time in a very you know, authentic way. So we created the character of Etta, who, as you know, came from Tulsa to the East Coast after the Tulsa race riots. And she, her, we set it up that her family owned a photography studio and she's a camera woman. And we used her perspective and her camera as a way to bring some of this footage into the story um, by showing footage as though she had filmed it at the time. And we incorporated some of the other characters, you know, who were in the movie and sort of put them into some of that footage that we shot in black and white to integrate it all into one singular style. Where did you learn how to use a camera? My family owned a photo studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grew up with it. Why do you leave Oklahoma? Um, about six and a half years ago, the police and all the deputies, they burnt down my whole neighborhood. They said a black boy attacked a white girl. Can't the government do something? Great warplanes flew overhead, dropping firebombs. What do you mean? It was the government, Bess. More than a thousand of our homes destroyed. Why is there so much wrong in the world that no one knows about? It's easier to believe stories than make us feel safe. Etta's experience with the Tulsa Race Massacre and her role as a chronicler, the way she captures other examples of social injustice at the time, felt very contemporary. It almost had the feeling of how people were using cell phones in earlier months of this year during protests. Yes, she was, she was an early documenter of all of these events. And of course, there were people filming that archival footage at the time. So when you see these signs that are bannering and protesting police brutality and you know, all these other issues that we still protest about today, it makes it quite interesting. Yeah, it really feels so contemporary. The girls refer to King Tut and the pyramid several times throughout the film. Joe dreams of becoming an Egyptologist. And earlier in that decade, earlier in the time of this story, in November of 1922, Tut's tomb was discovered. Would you explain the 
connection the film makes between King Tut and exposing the truth about radium? Sure. It really stems from this, you know, idea of world building. So the things, things that had led up, you know, to the world that the Radium Girls existed in. I mean, Tulsa massacre happened six years before the Radium Girls, but, you know, Sacco and Manzetti had been happening across the river and downtown in the Stock Exchange in New York. And also several years before King Tut's tomb had been exhumed in Egypt and there was a real fascination with Egyptology. And that was something that made perfect sense that our girls would be obsessed with as well. And you have these ideas of death and a goddess of truth. And I love the line in the film at the end when Joe is saying to Bessie, I mean, did you know that the book of the dead is also called the book of coming forth into light? And I think that we wanted to give this sense of history and ancestry and transcendence as we all move through our own lives. I mean, we're all only here for a short time, but there was such an incredible poetry to, you know, many translations of the Book of the Dead. The one that we used is by a writer, Norman D. Ellis, and we, some of the poetry appears toward the end of the movie, but it gives you a sense of elevation because these were, these were girls and these were women who really stood up and used their voices and really took on things that were bigger than them. And it felt like, you know, we wanted, we wanted to honor that. We wanted to honor the fact that what they did was something that was accomplished with the support of many other women of the, of the, of the era, because women had just gotten the right to vote not that long before the Radium Girls case arose. And women wanted to use that vote. They, there was a dire need of legislation in the realm of industrialization. It was the Wild West. There were no child labor laws. There was no toxic, toxic chemical laws. And these were things that women were really spearheading. And so, you know, it made a lot of sense actually when we, when we dug deeper that these women took on the case of the Radium Girls in a way that really elevated them to a national level. In some ways, it may be the reason that we actually are talking about it right now. Even though we feel like it's been buried for a lot of years, at the time, it was it was considered a very notorious case, and it's very well documented because of that. Yes, so. and because of that, the fact that it was notorious and had a tremendous impact, I was hoping you could talk about how the fight against American radium led to a lasting impact on workplace health and safety regulations. What are some of the precautions and policies we have today, thanks to these heroic women? Well, there have been a lot of worker safety regulations that have been put in place and a lot of toxic chemical regulations that have been in place. I mean, unfortunately, a number of them have been rolled back over the last four years, but hopefully we'll... (laughs) We'll bring ourselves back to the level of progress we had achieved soon. But I would say as well that one of the things that I don't think people think about, but is really a big part of why their case, you know, needs to be remembered and needs to be looked back at is this toxic chemical industry creates a lot of waste and the waste of the radium factories. It happened in New Jersey. I believe it also in the Athens Uh, factory in Georgia, the waste gets used for landfill. And it was used in Montclair, New Jersey for in concrete for sidewalks and housing foundations. And that's why the EPA has had to come in and declare these places Superfund sites for contamination cleanup. And there was groundwater that was contaminated. It was, I mean, it wasn't just the idea that these girls were dying But this contamination was going out into our lives in ways that we actually didn't even understand until the 70s and 80s. This film seems remarkably timely. After I viewed it, I thought the importance of activism. Do you think that there is a 
particular resonance at this moment in 2020 watching the Radium Girls. Absolutely. I mean, when we made the movie, we were thinking about events like, you know, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, or the way people talk about what happens when you hold a cell phone up to your brain, you know, for hours on end. But I would say in the COVID crisis, there's so many parallels. It's, it's really haunting. You know, you think of COVID and radium as elements and things that we don't know everything about, or they didn't know everything about radium at the time. We're learning, still learning about COVID. You think about the idea that, that science is being denied and that governments are turning away from the idea of people suffering and falling sick and dying asking the question, is it safe to go back to work? Economies are being, you know, collapsed. And all of those issues are really, you know, turning into something that requires, it really requires a major collective force to stand up to. So I think, I think the Radium Girls were really whistleblowers of their time and the women around them supported them. And I think we've, you know, we're undergoing something in our country right now where We've seen the power of, of collective voice and we can see what more we can do. Director Lydia Dean Pilcher. Her film, Radium Girls, is streaming on watch.eventive.org slash radiumgirls. Lydia's solo feature film, A Call to Spy, is a World War II historical drama about women spies. I highly recommend watching it. It's streaming on Amazon Prime and YouTube. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we are Santa. Ron Cooper's collection of photos and heartening stories about a diverse group of Santas who do good all year round. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would just so love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.